Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Condensed Histories the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and this time round on the podcast, we're talking about the Lionesses, the England women's football team, and all of the action that they've been doing at the World Cup down in Australia and New Zealand. Yes, it's fair to say that football's coming home. Yeah, well, it's not, because I'm recording this immediately after the final, okay? Oh, well, more on that later. Because what I found fascinating was the moment they lost... Spoiler, I mean, if you're listening to this, you already know. But anyway, the moment they lost, a completely new idea popped into my head that I must share with you later on. I figured the best place to start might be with the evolution of the women's sport. Now, I did do an episode a year and a bit ago, maybe. At some point, there was something to do with football, and I definitely recorded an episode on that. So I'll be treading over a little bit of that ground again. But then, obviously, I'm going to be taking a sidestep into women's football and talking about the complexities and problems and misogyny, question mark, around it. The patriarchy is going to look even worse by the time I'm finished with this, but first of all, let's talk about the origins of football. Now, as I said in the previous episode where I mentioned football, the Chinese are very keen to point out that they've invented many things. Paper, gunpowder, various forms of mathematics. They had the most complex administration for any kind of civilization for a thousand plus years. All these things and so many more the Chinese invented, but they sometimes want to start stretching it out and start making claims to things that it's hard to say that they invented. So, yes, there seems to be some very vague references to some kind of ball game in 200 AD, or maybe it's 700 AD, but the point is that ball game clearly is not the progeniture of the modern game of football. Again, wrapping it around the current World Cup and China winning the Asia Cup and playing in the World Cup, they were knocked out in the group stages and lost 6-1 to the Lionesses. Yay! Yeah, again, more on that a bit later on. 
they again started saying, oh, you know, in these early ball games, our references to women playing it. So, you know, we've had female football players far longer than anywhere else. Look, if you want to talk about women's rights, good, go for you. That is a positive thing. I have no issue with that. Starting to extrapolate from ancient texts, which they haven't really been released. These are things that are discovered by the Chinese historians about how awesome China is without a lot of Westerners being given access to them. So, I don't know, maybe they're true, maybe they're not. But I can conclusively say that whatever sport that they were playing in the first millennia AD in China is definitely not something to do with modern football. Why can I say that? Because when the Westerners started interacting with China in the 1700s and in the 1800s, and yes, not always in a good way, various violence and drugs trades and land grabs and all these other things, terrible things, but the point is that of all the things that the Westerners wrote about China, and they were seriously impressed by things like the Forbidden City and the huge complex agriculture of China, the one thing they didn't mention is the thousands and thousands of football fields and how they picked up this amazing game from China and exported it back to Europe because that didn't happen. That just wasn't a game being played in China. So whatever they were playing, it was clearly a lot of fun for those people and then it was forgotten about later on. So, where does football actually come from? Well, as I've said, a ball game is something that all civilizations have had in some form or another. But if you look specifically at England, you get a medieval version of football. And it is barely football. Quite often it was two local towns which had a bit of a rivalry with each other. And usually a couple of times a year it would be organised that a large quantity of men from one village would try and get a ball to something like the town square in the other village, and general anarchy ensued. These games would last for days. You absolutely didn't have to just kick it. It was grabbed, hidden, fights broke out. It was a mess, basically. I'm sure good boozy fun was had by all, and trying to work out the score was almost impossible, and really, it was little more than an excuse for some kind of local riot. Then, football hooliganism was invented before the games of football, if you like. And this is why you get a number of famous people in history trying to ban football. Not because they're spoil sports, not because they were trying to shut down something like Emirates Stadium, or what have you, because those things just didn't exist. One, they didn't like vaguely organised riots, and two, the common man was meant to be busy training to pull a longbow, because in things like the Hundred Years' War, you had to train over and over again. If you were one of the peasant class, you were tied to the land, that's what feudalism is all about, and also one of the things you had to do was prepare to be a peasant archer. Now, the greatest bow ever invented ever is the longbow. It went further than any other bow ever invented, and it had, depending if you had the right arrows, greater penetrating power. As shown at places like Crecy and Agincourt, they were able to literally puncture steel armour. But to do that, and this six-foot-tall bow, 
it meant it had a lot of draw strength. You needed to be very strong to pull that bowstring back to your cheek before you loosed the arrow. And so that meant that you had to keep practicing it. You couldn't just do it on a whim. This is one of the reasons why Europe didn't pick up the longbow. That culture didn't exist. Instead, a crossbow had similar range, not quite as good, and similar penetrating power, not quite as good, but because it was an early form of ratcheting and mechanisms were involved, you were lucky to get two shots off in a minute compared to a longbow where you could easily fire 30. So in every possible way, a longbow was better. You didn't really have to train that hard a crossbowman. That is why, in the past, we have had people banning football because it was a way that the peasants actually got broken through various injuries rather than any spoil sportness and preparing for war. This goes on for centuries. However, once we get into the 1800s, a number of famous sports start getting ratified with formal rules. Things like cricket had existed at the time when America was a colony. However, the formal rules of cricket really only solidified in the 1800s. Same thing with football, same thing with tennis. There's real tennis, which is something that Henry VIII famously would be able to play, but real tennis is only indoors, has various walls. You can see an element of squash to it. It's certainly not the same thing as what you'd be seeing being played in Wimbledon today. And football is no different to all of that. Indeed, we know the year. 1863 is when we get the formalization of the football rules. And this is where, just a few years after that, we start seeing some of the very earliest teams being formed. Some of the oldest football teams in the world aren't in somewhere like Italy, they're in England. And once these rules had been formalized, it was less rough and tumble, unlike compared to, like I said, two villages bashing each other over the head for a pig's bladder. And consequently, if it was a bit more gentle, it was seen as more relevant to women. So actually, once it had become ratified, women started playing, sort of. Because obviously we're talking about the 1800s, and women still were very much second-class citizens to the men. Sorry, but we definitely have evidence no later than the 1880s that women are playing and creating teams. However, I absolutely must mention 1894, which is seen as the foundation of the British Ladies Football Club. That was its name at the time, and it was founded by the marvellously named Nettie Honeyball. Indeed, her name is so cute, a lot of people think that it was a nom de plume or nickname or something like that, but Nettie Honeyball is a better name than any male football player in the whole of football history. I will fight you on that. And the reason why she's seen as the founder of the British Ladies Football Club is because she was literally paying for advertisements in newspapers specifically for women players. Yes, women had already been playing for years, but in essence it was an amateur thing. It was not a particularly well-organized thing. It was Nettie who brought some formality and authority to it. 
Then we fast forward to World War One. Women had by now been playing football for at least 50 years. But what we've got with World War One is the mass migration of men out of the day-to-day -day lives and now onto the front lines. Indeed, it is a very hot topic. And I would love to get people's thoughts on Twitter or X or whatever the hell it's called now. Please let me know. I'm at GemDaduchu on Twitter and threads, if anybody's still using that. Also, the other one I'm going to just put out there is, if this is the first time you've seeing the podcast hello please click subscribe please give us a review on whatever podcast app you're listening to us on thank you very much and there's two podcasts a week so i do post it on things like threads and twitter saying you know, this is what it is now so if you see that please retweet it or repost it whatever it's called now and just help us spread the word we are starting to grow it's been a good summer but we could always grow a bit further thank you very much right okay plug done so, World War I, the men are in the trenches. So, the women are starting to appear in male jobs. And this is what I'm saying about the contentious issue. Because prior to World War I, we get the suffragettes movement, and it's getting more and more extreme. It is worth remembering, look, I am obviously all for women's rights. I think that men and women should be treated equally. I hope that's not a controversial plan. And in that regards, I'm all for the suffragettes. But the suffragettes, taken a little out of context, we can all agree on their principles, but literally trying to bomb the prime minister, that's never a good look for any organisation, no matter how good your idea is. Famously, we have one suffragette being knocked over by the king's horse during Ascot. And so on and so forth. So they are troublemakers. And you've got to cause some trouble if you're going to get men with all the power to pay attention. I absolutely hear that and agree with that. But there is an argument, and it is an argument, about how much good did that actually do. Because prior to 1914, the suffragettes hadn't really got anywhere. So the other argument is that while they are heightening the awareness of women's rights, it was World War I that actually made all the difference. Because if the argument is, oh, women aren't as good as men at things, whatever those things may be, but the men are off fighting, so the women are having to do things like being the milkman slash woman, or obviously, famously, working in factories doing quite heavy industrial work in things like munitions factories, making shells for the artillery pieces to help win the war. With all that in mind, when you start seeing that these women are more than capable of doing these jobs that the men have been doing, it's comes harder to start saying, well, they shouldn't have any other rights. And either way, whichever way you want to see it, it was after World War I that women get the vote and their lives improve in terms of their place in society. So happy to hear your views both ways. Personally, I think that the suffragettes started the conversation. The war underlined it all and made it irreversible in terms of once women are out there in general life, then you can't really ask them to go back into the kitchen after the war. During this, however, we still want to be entertained. And so football was a big thing for women. And I love the fact that by 1917, we get the Munitionettes Cups. So these are women who, by day, by weekday are working in the munitions factories and then on the weekend are playing 
for the female version of Sheffield United or whatever, and they were hugely popular. So much so that when the men came back from the war, they continued to be popular. We're now into 1920, when it was not uncommon to get crowds of 50,000 or more. They were getting as many people watching the women's football as the men's football. And so this is where it looks really bad for men. In December 1921, the Football Association, the FA, banned women's football. If you can't beat them, ban them. And so women weren't able to play in those stadia anymore. And then it went quiet until 1970, when the FA finally lifted the professional ban on women's football, which is absolutely disgusting. But before we start pointing the finger solely at the FA, let's name and shame a few other countries, shall we? Germany, after the war, and a country that started to win World Cups for the men's team, they banned it in 1950 and kept the ban until 1970. France banned it in 1941. I guess they had bigger things to worry about in 1941, but they took the time to ban women's football and again kept it as a banned activity professionally until 1970. But it's perhaps Brazil, the country famous around the world for football, that really needs to be named and shamed in this situation. Because again, they banned it in 1941. Brazil was an active participant on the Allied side in World War II. Good for them. But there wasn't a particularly good reason to ban women's football in 1941. Indeed, there were thousands of Brazilian men going off to fight, so maybe they want to use the women. But that ban lasted until 1979. So that's after... Pele has won all three of his World Cups, so absolutely shame on Brazil on that one. And in general, all men need to kind of hand their heads in shame over this one. It doesn't make us look good. Sorry. So, with that all going on, interestingly, in America, football, I will now refer to it as soccer for this part of the story, was never the big sport in America. It's football, American football, and baseball, and basketball, and ice hockey. All of these are bigger than soccer. So it was never banned for the women. And over the years, particularly when we're talking about things like the 1970s, young girls were being better trained in America to play soccer than any girls in England, for example. And that's why, by the time the ban is lifted, in America, it's seen very much as a female sport, whereas in Europe, it's seen as the most manly of manly sports. A fascinating change forced by some misogynistic patriarchs of the pop. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Now, just before the ban was lifted... The FA, in 1969, creates the English Women's Football Association. And this, ironically, is largely because of an increase of interest in the World Cup, because in 1966, England hosted the World Cup, and indeed, England won the World Cup. Again, I go into all of this in the other episode, but the reason why the FA did not become one of the founding members of FIFA and one of the founding members of the Football World Cup is because English football was so far ahead of the rest of the world at that time, and we're talking about the 1920s and 30s here, why did they bother? Why do we want to bother playing Uruguay or Brazil or other countries because they're so far behind us? There was a kind of arrogance that the rest of the world isn't going to catch up, and by the time the rest of the world had caught up, England was now just one of many players of football in tournaments. And in 66, yes, England wins the World Cup, but they win the World Cup on their own soil. And for the men's team, it has never been able to replicate that success since. However, in 1991, eventually, FIFA creates a Women's World Cup. And I'm not going to go through all of the scores or anything like that. Instead, I'm just going to say that... Unsurprising from all the information I've just given you, America, the United States of America, has won more World Cups for women's teams than any other country in the world. They've won four. That's not far off how many Brazil's men's team has won and shows you the dominance of America. Now, America did get knocked out surprisingly early in the 2023 Women's World Cup. The second most successful team in the Women's World Cup is Germany. So there is some comparisons there to the Men's World Cup. However, having won two, they haven't really performed very well in recent World Cups. Let's bring in 
the Lionesses, the English women's football team, into this story. And what I found fascinating about the final is this is the first time I can ever remember where an English team at an important global final is the favourite. In 1966, England was not the favourite. They had done well, and obviously they had a home advantage, but West Germany, as it was called then, had performed better in World Cups than England had, and subsequently have never won anything since. So, with this women's team, it's worth remembering that in the last women's European Cup, they had won it. So they were the European champions going into the World Cup. By comparison, the men's team had also managed to get to the European Championships finals, the Euros. Unfortunately, they'd lost to Italy in a penalty shootout, because that's what the England men's football team does, quite surprisingly, often. So they got close. They got really close. They would have been the first English men's team to have won any kind of trophy since 66, and the first one ever to have won the European trophy, but it wasn't to be. They came close, but not quite close enough. With the women, however, when they won, it was glorious. There was an interview with Serena Wiegmann. She is the Dutch manager of the team. She's a remarkable woman who now has brought two teams to the finals for different countries in consecutive World Cups. Beat that, men. So Serena Wiegmann is amazing. She's also an openly gay woman. And what I find fascinating, again, showing you the weird biases that happen in society, there are almost no openly gay male football players in things like La Liga or the Premiership, etc. It's still pretty taboo. And yet, when it comes to the national players in the women's teams, well, some of them are dating each other, even. There are far more openly lesbian football players in the women's World Cup than there are gay players in the men's World Cup. So it just shows that there is more openness on the women's team. Also, when the opening game of this World Cup with England playing Haiti, I was sitting there and I decried one player rolling around on the floor, clutching her leg, going, oh, for heaven's sakes, get up. And a female friend of mine, Kirsty, quick shout out to you, Kirsty, you are awesome. She said, no, Jem, if you look at the facts statistically, female football players are far less likely to go down with fake injuries than male football players. They want to play. And I love that lot. And she was right. As I watched the rest of the tournament, there were far fewer people rolling around on the floor, apart from one, which I will come on to again in a minute. So, Serena Wiegmann, she's Dutch, she's no nonsense, and she has taken England to become European champions, not world champions, sadly, sorry, oof, but close. She has done better than any male coach since the time of 66. But anyway, at the start of a press conference just after when they had won the European Championships. There's Serena talking to the press, and then suddenly you could hear some noise. And then the team just burst through the door, chanting, football's coming home, waving their jerseys around, and 
just causing joyous anarchy. And there was a little part of me thinking, man, it would have been lovely to have seen the guys do something like that. But I think that even if the men had won, they would never have danced in singing. But yeah, we scored a goal. It's more than that, though, isn't it? Isn't it character and heart and motivation as well? Men just don't seem to have as much fun with this stuff as the women. So that was just a wonderful, almost iconic moment in English football. So that's what's going on there. As I've mentioned, they come into the, the finals and uh, that's the technical name for the tournament for the World Cup. It's in Australia, New Zealand, long way from home. It's winter time as well, but they do really well. Haiti, first game, 1-0 pretty boring. Same actually with Nigeria. But James loses her call and stamps on the back of one of the pro-Nigerian players. And I remember going back to, I believe it was France 98, when David Beckham petulantly in the quarterfinals kicks one of the opposing players and then gets sent off with a red card and the team crashes out and everybody pours their hate on Beckham which I think is wrong, but it obviously made a very foolish and very costly mistake. But the interesting thing now is with VAR, you're an idiot to have done these things. Obviously, James just lost her cool, okay? And she said that and she apologised. And the critical thing was she was able to maintain a two-match ban and yet still play in the final in the second half, obviously. And she was so feared, being the highest goal scorer in the whole tournament, that Spain pretty much marked her out of the game. But take that as a compliment. She looked pretty dangerous when she went forwards. The point is that nowadays with VAR, it's so hard to get anything past anyone. But I do, I'm now going to moan about the final, okay? So, Spain wins 1-0. And the, the goal that Spain scores was a blinder. It just squeaked past Mary Earps, who I think she has the best nickname in all of British sports of any type. Her name is Mary Earps. She is an amazing goalkeeper. And so she is nicknamed Mary Queen of Stops. Now, I think there was somebody out there waiting to use this. But how many goalkeepers are called Mary? And then how many goalkeepers called Mary are any good? And so that is a brilliant name. I absolutely love Mary Earps to bit. Because in the final, there is the VAR decision, this, or this virtual referee, which they then show that there was a handball in the English penalty area, which meant that Spain gets a penalty and Earps stops it dead. She guessed which way the Spanish player was going to go, saves it, and then you need to be a lip reader to know that she was very happy to the point where she's just standing there sticking her tongue out. She is awesome. I don't know a lot about her private life because I decided not to. I don't look at the private lives of the various players for the England men's team, so why should I do it about the women's? But she just has that look. She's just so no-nonsense. She's got her hair really pulled back into a ponytail, and I can just see her as being... I've seen women look like that with, like, a, a two-year-old, and she's just no-nonsense with the toddler. So... If she is a mum, I'm sure she's a great mum. And if she isn't a mum and she chooses that direction, which not all women do, I think she'll be great. 
because she just has this look of complete reliability. And obviously, if a child drops something, she's going to catch it every time. But Daly is actually my player of the tournament, for England at least, because she was just everywhere. She didn't do much in the way of assists or, or actual goals. My two boys counter me going, oh, but James has scored more and blah, blah, blah. But it seemed to me, apart from the final, almost every time I was seeing a gameplay or playmaking pass or suddenly a last-ditch defence, Daly was there. She was amazing. And also, I'm just going to put it out there, she's a good-looking woman too. But anyway, regardless of that, it's her skills I'm talking about here. She was sensational and put in 100% effort at all times. But let's go back to the final then, shall we? And one of the other reasons why England was the favourites, and that's because a few years ago, it is actually just before the Euros, they played Latvia. And now I'm going to ask you to think that what did the Latvian, which is obviously a small country, they were playing England, who was the rising stars of women's football. What do you think the score was? And the answer is 20 nil. I encourage you to go onto YouTube to watch the highlights, because whereas some highlights of some matches, they're really having to scrape the bottom of the barrel to show anything interesting happening in that 1-0 event that was blah blah On this particular occasion, it's just wall-to-wall goals. And it's embarrassing. Indeed, afterwards, back to Serena Wiegmann, she actually said that scores like this doesn't do the women's game any justice. And she's right, because if you get that kind of score in the men's one, you just assume, well, that other team shouldn't even be playing. And Latvia women, I'm sure, try very hard, but Latvia is a small country. What effort they put into, they're going to put into the men's team, which means the women's teams get almost nothing. It is worth pointing out that it's one of the England players that is the biggest transfer signing in women's football history at £400,000. That's it. Ronaldo, I think, went for £300 million to some Saudi Arabian company, uh, the team, I should say. By comparison... Yeah, the, the women don't get paid very much. And this is where we get into a complicated discussion. China wins the Asia Cup, plays England, loses 6-1. England makes China look pedestrian. Indeed, England makes China look weaker than somewhere like Haiti, an incredibly poor Caribbean country. And so, if you're getting 20 nil, if you've won the European Cup, if you smash the Asian champion 6-1... By the time you get to the finals, it looks like you're the favourite. Spain, by comparison, was solid throughout. That's how they got to the final. I'm not dissing them in any way. But I found it interesting, going back to my friend Kirsty's comment, that in the final, oh my goodness, Spain rolled around on the floor a lot. It was like watching the men's team, or indeed the Italian men's team, on how much time there was rolling around on the floor and clutching limbs and then getting up and running around again. It looked surprisingly male in the amount of play acting that was going on. Saying that, though, there was the case with the English player where they had their head strapped up, and I always love a good bandaged head in a football match because you couldn't look more like you're trying 100% than looking like you are literally survived a battle. Again, 10 out of 10 to the women. I think that I found it interesting. There were times on paper in every possible way England should have been the better team. 
but there were times, quite large stretches, where Spain was the better team. Annoyingly, whereas it was a good VAR decision about the handball, as frustrating as it was, but no harm, there was a time when one of the Spanish players towards the end in extra time, just not extra time, actually around about like the 82nd minute, just kicked the ball away, which is deliberate time-wasting and is an automatic yellow card. But because that player had already had a yellow card, I get the feeling that the referee decided it was just heat of the moment. But that heat of the moment meant that you should have sent her off and then there would have only been 10 Spanish players and that might have helped England. But at the same time, I saw the sloppiest performance for England that I'd seen in the entire tournament. England's notoriously good at passing. They kept giving the ball away. Mind you, so did the Spaniards. There were times when an English person passes, it's intercepted by a Spaniard who's then intercepted by another English person who then bounces it off a Spanish person. And it's like, how many different people are going to have this ball in what should have been one pass? It was sloppy. And there was one the commentator said, Previously, they played with precision. Now they seem to be playing with hope. And the amount of long balls, which reminded me of like the England male team around about the year 2000, lob it up the end and see if somebody can get to it, isn't very useful, particularly at a World Cup final. And really, on pretty much all occasions, when England was attacking, it was down the wings, cross it into the box, hope somebody's there. Now, that's not bad, but the link-up play was the worst I'd seen in them in the entire tournament. But also... Nobody tried shooting from the corner of the box or just dribbling it in, just going straight down the middle and just go for it. Striker versus goalie. And there were a number of times where that goalie looked extremely vulnerable. Indeed, apparently her first appearance was in the last 16 and she, every single match apart from this one, she'd conceded. And she certainly didn't look particularly confident in goal. Saying that though, the Spanish defence looked pretty rock solid. So... It's one of these things where what if? But this is where I'm going to leave you with a bit of history. Because I said right at the beginning of this, there was something that occurred to me as soon as the final whistle was played. And that is, at the beginning of this morning, I felt confident. I felt far more confident about the women winning the World Cup than the last time the men were in a final. Or indeed, most of the time when the England men's team is playing in any tournament. And... It should have gone the other way. All logic, all previous data would have dictated an England win and we would have been able to play footballs coming home. We would have had some kind of procession down Trafalgar Square or something on the double-decker bus. It would have been glorious and wonderful. It wasn't to be. And that's the same as history. By the time you hear this podcast, you know England lost. And I'm telling you stuff that if you're watching the match, you already know. And that's what it's like when you read history. You already know. The writer already knows what happens next. But remember that feeling before the match, during the match, and then immediately after the match of, oh, what I thought was going to happen didn't. And it's the same thing if we're talking about Napoleon or Julius Caesar, or Anne Boleyn, people don't know what's going to happen next. And they can only make the best choices they can. And everybody has a good day, and everybody has a bad day. And unfortunately, today, the English women's team had a bad day. But unlike some of these other people from history, like Anne Boleyn, they have a second chance. 
That's it from me. Another episode coming soon.